Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. When the Tiger Mom suggests to me that I read a book, I listen. I'd be afraid not to. Amy Chua was back on the program about a month ago. She had a tongue-in-cheek contract that she had asked her daughters to sign in order to live in her New York City apartment this summer. We had some fun with that. I took note of the fact that the Tiger Mom wrote about my next guest, J.D. Vance, and his new book, Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis, the following, a beautifully and powerfully written memoir about the author's journey from a troubled, addiction-torn Appalachian family to the Yale Law School. Hillbilly Elegy is shocking, heartbreaking, gut-wrenching, and hysterically funny. It's also a profoundly important book, one that opens a window on a part of America usually hidden from view and offers genuine hope in the form of hard-hitting honesty. Hillbilly Elegy announces the arrival of a gifted and utterly original new writer and should be required reading for everybody who cares about what's really happening in America. 
This is J.D. Vance. Hey, J.D., thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Before receiving the book, I read the essay that you published in the New York Times, The Bad Faith of the White Working Class, which I thought was really phenomenal. When you were 11 years old, you asked your grandmother what question and for what reason? Yeah, I I asked my grandmother if, if God loved us. And the reason I asked it is we had just had a really, really traumatic day. It had started on a kind of high note, and it ended with a really violent car ride where, frankly, my sister and I thought we we might not survive. And I remember standing in my grandma's living room, and my sister had just marched up to bed, teary-eyed and really sad. And I I just asked her, Mamma, does God love us? You know, why why do these things keep happening to us? And and as I write in, in, in the book, you know, she, she really reassured me and I think spent the remainder of my childhood trying to show me that love. And that's that's frankly what, what saved me and gave me a chance. I'm part of the way through the book. I'm not entirely finished, but I know enough to recognize that you think that the, for lack of a better description, that the white church, as people once knew it, has disappeared and that that has had significant consequences for the country. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the statistics, they suggest that folks who go to church, they they do less drugs, they divorce less, they are happier, they commit less crime. And if you contrast that with the white working class, where a lot of these social indicators are really going in the wrong direction, and you say, man, these, these folks could really use that positive benefit the church provides. And unfortunately, they're, they're not going to church, and church has sort of disappeared from their lives. And it's not all that surprising then that these social indicators continue to trend in the wrong direction. But is it causal? I mean, I've read the same data about families that have dinner together. We try to have dinner together as a family. I don't think it's because my kids have been there to to pass the salt and the pepper, but rather because it's a window into what else is going on in your world. Yeah, I think it's a very fair question. And one of the pieces I cite in my New York Times essay is by the much maligned Obama administration economist Jonathan Gruber, he had this really seminal paper when he when he was at MIT where he actually tried to tease out whether this this effect was causal or whether it was just you know like you said kind of a window into something that's already working. And he actually found that, that the effect was causal that that the church and it's not clear what about church it probably has to do with the social and community building aspects of church. But the church does actually have this causal effect on good social outcomes. And I, I think that's kind of amazing, um, especially coming from, from economists who may not be super, super sympathetic to, you know, white evangelicals. Paint the picture of your upbringing, because I, for, for many of us, heroin and broken families and joblessness, we, we might be one degree of separation from it, but you, you've been in the thick of it and nevertheless were able to go to the Yale Law School. Yeah, so 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 it was it was a really rough time, especially when I was a young kid. The family, you know, my my mother struggled with addiction. We moved every three or six months to to one or another boyfriend's house. There was occasionally domestic violence, occasionally child services inserted into our lives. And so, what I tell people is that it was frankly just this extraordinarily chaotic environment where every single day when the school bell rang, I felt miserable because I knew I had to go home to it. And what happened is, is when I was in about middle school, I think my grandmother realized that this was really not working for me and that I was really struggling. I nearly failed out of my freshman year of high school. 
And, you know, she was just this amazingly powerful woman and said, you know what, you're going to come stay with me and you're going to live with me. And from now on, you're going to have one home and you're going to have nobody else coming in and out of it. And you're going to work hard in school and I'm going to show you how to get ahead. And, and like I write in the book, that, that really did turn my life around. And I think so many of the opportunities I've had in the past 15 years came from from that really tough love. Which was a bigger eye-opener for a kid who'd grown up in Appalachia the way you had, the Marines or Yale? Well, and I, that's hard to question to answer. And in different ways, they were both very eye-opening. The Marines were eye-opening because they really demanded the best of me. It was an extraordinarily disciplined and demanding world, and I think something that I, I really needed. Yale Law School was weird because... For, for a kid like me, you know, kids kids like me, a $40,000 salary is an unfathomable sum of money. And folks at Yale Law School know that they're going to make $150,000, $160,000 when they graduate from law school, and they talk about it not being enough. And I think that, that, that was really, really eye-opening to see how the other half lived and, 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 and what they, they expected out of their lives compared to the folks who came from, from where I came from. You made the observation in the book that the Ivy Leagues are fixated on diversity, but it's not always of the, the kind that represents your background. Yeah, that's right. It's very superficial in some ways. It, it, and I think it, it's good that we have folks from different races and different geographic backgrounds. But at the end of the day, almost every single person who goes to Yale Law School comes from a two-parent family, comes from a relative financial privilege, uh, and at the end of the day, if it, you know whether white, black, or brown, there aren't a lot of poor kids. There aren't a lot of kids from the middle part of the country. And I think that the reason there aren't is because these kids just aren't prepared for the sort of academic rigor and the life that Yale Law School demands, as I found out in some ways. And, and, and I think that to really fix that problem, you, you have to start at the source and you have to think about where these kids are coming from. And that's, of course, why I wrote the book. When uh, when you got home shortly after you began, and I guess you were at a gas station not far from Aunt Wee's house, a That's woman right, yeah. is wearing a Yale shirt. Tell me about that exchange. Yeah, so so I asked her if she went to Yale, and she said, yeah. The, she said, my, my nephew does, I believe. Uh, do, do you go to Yale? And I remember feeling this really intense sense of cultural betrayal because Folks from where I come from, they don't go to Yale, and I think they view folks who go to Yale suspiciously. And so I, I kind of had this weird moment where I decided that I was going to be, uh, you know, I was going to be JD from back in the holler, back from Rust Belt, Ohio. I wasn't going to be JD, the Ivy Leaguer. And I lied to her. I said, no, I don't go to Yale. My girlfriend does, though. And that ended the conversation. <laughs> and I think that that's a really interesting insight into this sort of psychological conflict that folks feel from back home where, you know, most people think of going to Yale as something to be proud of or something to celebrate. And for me, even though I, I was proud of it, I also felt a bit like a class trader just by having having spent so much time in New Haven, Connecticut. Well, J.D., you introduced the book with a confession that you find the book idea absurd. How come? Well, because I'm, I'm not, you know, that impressive of a person. You know, I have a good job. I have a good marriage. I work at an investment firm in Silicon Valley, but I've never done anything. I think you know, I'm not a president. I haven't founded a multi-billion-dollar company, so I, I think it's a little weird that folks would would read about my life. And at the end of the day, the reason I was convinced that it was a story worth 
with writing is, is for some of the reasons we've talked about, that there aren't a lot of folks from the Middletown, Ohio's of the world at Yale Law School. We're not a very upwardly mobile country these days. And I think to understand that, you really need to understand the people who come from that area. And hopefully I describe them pretty well in, in my book, through my family and through my own story. When I checked out the book at Amazon, you know how Amazon suggests to you, if they see that you're interested in J.D. Vance and Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis, they immediately make recommendations for you, almost like Apple does music, et cetera, et cetera. Here's, sure. here's the company you keep. Uh, it's been suggested to me that I might be interested in White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America by Nancy Eisenberg, $16.80, by the way, or White Rage, the unspoken truth of our racial divide by Carol Anderson, which will set you back 1880. Yeah, yeah. And, and those books, as I understand them, I've, I've taken a look at each of them. I haven't read either of them in full. Those books are really academic studies that try to tease out poverty and the sociology and the history of, of different groups of people. I think what my book is, is trying to do, there is a sociological element of it. I do rely on academic studies to make some of the arguments that I make. But at core, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is explain how a given group of people think, how the culture processes certain information, and frankly, why there's a lot of anger and disaffection and why... You know, at the end of the day, um, I didn't know that, that anger and disaffection would take the form that it has, but I, I can't tell you I'm surprised, coming where I'm from, that Donald Trump is, is the Republican Party nominee. But as I write in the book, this is going to come out some way. This, this anger and this disaffection and this mistrust of elites, it's going to manifest itself in some way, and here we are. Well, somewhere, either in the essay or in the book itself, you, I don't, I don't, uh, can't find my place now, but you made the observation, drawn from polling data that I'm familiar with, that his evangelical support is largely predicated on self-describes who don't go to church. Yeah, that's exactly right, and it's a really interesting phenomenon. If you actually break down evangelicals by regular churchgoers versus non-churchgoers, so the folks who just say, yeah, I'm an evangelical, but I don't actually participate much in religious service. The folks who aren't going to church are the, the biggest supporters of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And those who are regularly going to church, they're voting for different candidates. You know, they were voting for Rubio or Cruz or Kasich. And I think that's a really fascinating insight into the lives of these people, that those who are part of a religious community, those whose lives are in some ways intact, are not supporting Donald Trump. And I, I think there are lessons to take from that. Well, a final question for J.D. Vance. Then why has this support for the white church, for lack of a better descriptor, dropped off? I mean, is it because the church leadership has been hijacked, had their role usurped? You point out that that now the most important institution of our lives, if it exists at all, encourages us to point a finger at faceless elites in Washington. Who or what is to blame for that? So I think it's extraordinarily complicated. I think that, that part of it is just the rise of the megachurch as an institution, which you know may be good in some ways, but at the end of the day, doesn't provide the sort of community support and the local uh, the local group that that uh, older institutions and older churches provided. I think a big part of it is that the church has become extraordinarily political. So it's it's hard to sit in a modern evangelical church these days unless you're a very devout Christian conservative. 
Um, you know, as someone who is both a Christian and somewhat conservative, um, I, I think I understand the appeal of that message, but it also can be very alienating for people. So there are a lot of, and there are a lot of other factors, I think, at work here, but I, I do think that the politicization of the Church and the deinstitutionalization of the Church, the fact that it's moved online, on, on TV, and into megachurches are, are two really big explanations. I think that is a, a really insightful observation that you have credibility to offer because you are a conservative and a person of faith. Final question. What was the tiger mom like in the classroom? You know, she was extraordinarily disciplined and a great teacher, but at the end of the day, she was also very, very sweet. And, and you know, she she's a really big advocate for her students, which is, of course, how how you found out about me in the first place. So I think, um, you know, she, she, she really she really cares about her students, and it shines through in a lot of different ways. J.D. Vance, the book is titled Hillbilly Elegy. J.D., thank you so much. I wish you all good things. Great, thank you. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays.